Once he gained his freedom, Henry Martin began working at the Rotunda. He's almost 40 years old by the time he gains his freedom. It's immediately after the Civil War that he begins his role as the janitor of the Rotunda. Now, the Rotunda is that Jeffersonian building with a dome that is the heart and soul of UVA. It still is the heart and soul of the University of Virginia, symbolically but also physically. Martin had been enslaved by Thomas Jefferson and believed himself to be Jefferson's son. But in his self-commissioned portraits at the Holsinger Portrait Studio, Henry Martin belongs only to himself. So these portraits that Martin commissioned show him as a statesman. They are portraits that absolutely take him away from the university. They are studio portraits. There's no trace of the university. There's no trace of being a bell ringer. There's no trace of being a janitor. In both, he is shown as a man of tremendous dignity and respectability. It is uh, uh, just an immensely dignified picture. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, visions of style and progress. In the 1970s, the University of Virginia inherited 10,000 glass plate negatives from the nearby Holsinger Portrait Studio. Between 1890 and 1924, it had been the premier studio in Charlottesville. Among those 10,000 glass plate negatives were 600 self-commissioned portraits of local African-Americans. John Edwin Mason is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. He spent years sitting with those 600 images, getting to know those people. Now he's co-curator of the Visions of Style exhibition, which displays fierce, stylish, and self-determined African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century. John, I'm struck that you say these beautiful turn-of-the-century portraits of African-American Virginians, men, women, and children, really were only preserved by accident? They were only preserved by accident. We're really lucky that they weren't just thrown out. So it's sort of happenstance that a UVA art professor found out about these negatives and thought that they would be worth preserving, especially since UVA was in the process of renovating the rotunda and thought that the photographs of the rotunda that are part of the collection would be useful to the architects who were overseeing the restoration of the rotunda. So that was the real reason for preserving them. But within that collection are these marvelous portraits. Who was the photographer? So the owner of the studio, the founder of the studio, was Rufus Halsinger. At the height in the 1920s, the studio employed 25 people. Tell me about who these people were that are featured in these portraits. Were they black residents of Charlottesville of means or more working-class people? Well, I'll tell you a story about myself. So when I started looking at these portraits... My assumption was that, oh, everybody in there is middle class. These must be the black elite of Charlottesville and the surrounding counties because people put on their Sunday best. Almost always they were well-dressed and they presented themselves to the camera with such poise and self-possession. Well, we start doing research into the lives of the people in the portraits and we find out that overwhelmingly they are working people. They are coachmen. They are cooks. They are railroad hands. They are housekeepers. They are janitors. These are people who worked for a living. So, yes, going to the portrait studio was a bit of a stretch, but there were price points at which you could get a really nice portrait. Now, even though all the photographers who worked for the Halsinger studio were white, Rufus Halsinger, the owner, was a very good businessman, and he understood that there are many colors in the rainbow. There is black, there is white, and there is green. You know, we have a particular family, the Washington family. They had a small farm, and the father of the family worked as a cooper. The Washington family came to the studio on at least eight different occasions over a period of years We have those portraits on the wall in our exhibition, and anybody who sees them will agree that they are really beautiful. Tell me about a handful of the pictures and what you see these individuals trying to express about themselves and their lives here during this period from the 1900 to 1925 or so. Sure. 
it was a time of Jim Crow. It was a time of segregation. It was a time of lynching. You know, the story of Charlottesville, this small college town where the University of Virginia is, is a story of the South. The thing is that you look at these portraits and you don't see a sign of racial oppression. You don't see a sign of Jim Crow. You know, what you see is what we have in the, in the title of the exhibition. You see dignity, you see pride, you see poise, you see respectability, you see self-assertion, you see style, you see grace, you see panache, you see swagger, you see all kinds of things in these images. You know, people are going for different kinds of things. Most of the African-American individuals and the families uh, that came to the studio were going for a kind of middle-class respectability. Some are going for swagger. So let me give you some examples, right? So we have the Biggers family. The husband and the wife grew up on farms, and uh, they are pictured with their three children, all girls. The girls are incredibly cute, and the the husband and wife are very, very, very well-dressed, and uh, you would never know that they were a farm family. But they're presenting themselves in ways that I think of as aspirational, that they are presenting themselves as people who have more money than they actually do. But that respectability is also a claim to equality, and a claim to equality is a claim to rights, right? So they are presenting themselves as people that are absolutely the equal of middle-class white families who should have the same rights and should have the same opportunities as white families. You know, we have pictures of soldiers who were coming back from World War I. So Almost 400,000 African-American soldiers served during World War I. About 200,000 went to France. Many saw combat. Many returning veterans, both black and white, went to the studio to have their portraits made in uniform, you know, after they had served. And these are tokens of their service to their country. These are tokens of their gallantry and their heroism and, and their sacrifice. For African-American soldiers, you know, they're also assertions of rights. They're saying that, well, look, Uncle Sam, I answered your call. I put my life on the line. Many served in combat. So let me tell you one that we have up on the wall during the exhibition. His name is Burnett Watson. He served in the United States Army in France during World War I and was wounded. And uh, he goes to the studio in uniform and has his portrait made, and it's a very dignified-looking portrait. And you can see in him, you know, he's proud of his service. You know, he had put his life on the line. He would, by this time, recovered from his wounds. But he also wants something more, right? He wants opportunity. He wants freedom. He wants rights. And so we have traced his life like we have traced the lives of many people in the exhibition. And uh, he leaves the Charlottesville area, goes to Atlantic City, and finds success in Atlantic City managing a saltwater taffy shop on the Atlantic City boardwalk. The gallery features these nine-foot-tall windows, and there are portraits in those windows— backlit by whatever the sun and sky have going on. Who are some of those people? One of the people in there is, is Cora Ross. So Cora Ross is dressed in a long, elegant gown. It's a white gown. She's wearing spectacles. She's got her head cocked to one side. She's got a hand on a hip. And people look at Cora Ross and they say, Oh my goodness, look at that woman. Look at her intelligence. Look at her, look at her power. Look at her style. She must be a teacher or a principal or something like that. No, she was a housekeeper for affluent white families in Charlottesville. But let me correct myself. That's how she earned her living. In this portrait, you can see her intelligence. You can see her grace. She's beautifully dressed. And in her posture, more than the way that she's dressed, you can see her elegance. And, you know, she's telling us something about herself that transcends her role in life as an African-American housekeeper for an affluent white family. There's Bill Hurley, also blown up oversized in a window. Now, Bill Hurley is not going for middle-class respectability. He is going for macho swagger. So <laughs> Bill Hurley and this portrait is sitting. That's unusual. And maybe one of the first things you see when you, you look at that portrait are his hands. 
these are very large hands. These are the hands of a man who has worked all of his life. And he was a stable hand and a coachman and a jack of all trades. He had done all of that. But you don't see any of that in the portrait. What you see is a man who's dressed in a sport coat. Underneath the sport coat is a flashy vest. He's got a shirt and tie underneath the vest. He's got a little hat on his head. He's looking directly into the camera with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. And in his right hand, he is holding a match. <laughs> and that match has a flame. And it looks as if he has just lit that cigarette. What does it tell you when you see that flame that looks so real in the lit match? The flame is not real. And so one of the things it tells us is the way that the studio collaborated with its African-American customers to give them the look that they wanted. So the photographic chemicals of the day could not register a flame on a match. You know, it wouldn't show up on the negative. So somebody retouched the negative. We can see where they retouched it. Somebody retouched the negative to make the flame very, very visible in the print. You know, a retoucher for the studio collaborating with the sitter to put what's already a very good portrait completely over the top with a visible flame there. And, you know, that's one of the arguments that we're making is that the Halsinger studio, despite the fact that it was uh, run entirely by whites, we're giving African-Americans what they wanted. We're cooperating with them to give them images that showed them the way they wanted to be seen and the way that they saw themselves. You know, you write about Frederick Douglass giving a series of lectures on photography back in the day. What era would that have been? That would have been the time of the Civil War. He understood, you say, that centuries of racism were aided and abetted by cartoonish stereotypes that people had drawn and that by seizing your own portrait, it was a chance of sort of defying how others define you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Frederick Douglass started thinking about photography from almost the day photography was invented. He's been called the most photographed man of the 19th century because he had his image made time after time after time. He always posed in a very regal style. It was a style that projected strength and intelligence and seriousness. And that was by design because he wanted himself to be seen as the representative African-American. And if an African-American was intelligent and serious, then that African-American was challenging all those crudely racist stereotypes that were so pervasive at the time. Now, Douglas had great faith in photography. Uh, Douglas did not trust hand-drawn images because they could degenerate into caricature, right, because they were so subjective. He saw photography as a purely mechanical process. It was about light and chemistry and optics, right? It was, he, he believed that the hand of the photographer and the hand of the developer weren't really involved in making the image. It was physics and chemistry. And because it was just about chemistry and just about physics, there was no subjectivity. So he believed that photography would create a true image of African-Americans that would be completely divorced from the stereotypes and the caricatures. And, you know, I've got to say that these African-Americans from central Virginia who went to the Halsinger studio in the late 19th and early 20th century also had that faith in photography. You're reminding me of a story you tell about a series of images of the man who had rung the bell in UVA Chapel for 40 years, who'd been yeah. born into slavery. That's right. Had been known, you say, by generations of students, sort of a beloved character, Henry Martin. Tell me about how he came to present himself to the world. Henry Martin is a remarkably complicated and a remarkably sophisticated man. And I think we're only starting to wrestle with just how remarkable he was and how well he understood the power of the visual to tell a story about himself. So Henry Martin was born on Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello, just outside the city of Charlottesville, on July the 4th, 1826. That is the day that Thomas Jefferson died. 
So that connects him to Monticello. By the way, it's it's well established that his mother was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. That is not something that was made up. Now, Henry Martin also said that Thomas Jefferson was his father. He said this throughout his life. It was reported at the time. And if you look at his death certificate, Henry Martin's death certificate, under father, it says Thomas Jefferson. The death certificate, the informant for the death certificate was his daughter, one of his daughters. He had a large family. So that tells us, it doesn't tell us for sure that Thomas Jefferson is his father, but it tells us the family believed that, right? It is part of family lore. Others did not believe it? It was accepted that there might be a Jeffersonian connection in his lineage. Other people said, no, 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 it must be somebody else within Jefferson's kinship network. They've always said that. Yeah. (laughs) So there was this aura of Jeffersonian connection surrounding Henry Martin. He was tall, like Thomas Jefferson. He was relatively light-skinned. He had a very good muscular build, like Thomas Jefferson. He's very Jeffersonian. Okay, so he was born into slavery. That's another thing that we have to say. His mother was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. He was owned by Jefferson's estate. Henry Martin begins his connection with UVA, working as a waiter and as a janitor in one of these boarding houses. He remains enslaved, of course, until the Civil War. He's almost 40 years old by the time he gains his freedom. It's immediately after the Civil War that he begins his role as the janitor of the Rotunda. Now, the Rotunda is that Jeffersonian building with a dome designed by Thomas Jefferson um, that is the heart and soul of UVA. It still is the heart and soul of the University of Virginia, symbolically but also physically. So Henry Martin becomes the head janitor there, which means he's starting all the fires, he's cleaning all the rooms, he's always around the rotunda. His other job is to ring the bell. Now, to ring the bell was really important because ringing the bell, it signaled the beginning of the day for people who worked at UVA. It signaled the beginning and the end of every class, and it signaled the end of the working day. So from about 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening, that bell was ringing every, every hour. And every time you heard it, you knew it was Henry Martin. So Henry Martin had this impact of being at the rotunda, a symbolic heart of the university, and ringing the bell that was part of the oral atmosphere of the university. You just couldn't get away from Henry Martin. For how long? Over 40 years. He's a man of great personal dignity. And everybody senses that. He's a man who has tremendously good manners. He's a man who treats everybody well. He's somebody who always remembers a name and always remembers a face. He becomes sort of a mascot for the University of Virginia, for its students, its alumni, and its faculty. They respect him. They, they sense his personal dignity. They know that he never misses a day of work, and he's never late or tardy in anything that he does. They admire the way that he carries himself with that very erect military bearing. They appreciate his personal dignity, but they also condescend to him because they see him as the perfect servant. And we see this not only in the way that they write about him, They literally call him a throwback to antebellum times, pre-Civil War times. They see him as the faithful slave, always ready to serve the, the white master. You see that in the writing, and you also see it in the pictures that are made of him that he does not commission for himself, where he's always centered at the university, usually at the rotunda or by the rope that rings the bell and always in his janitor's smock, right? So they're, so he's visually put in his place. Now, the cool thing that our research has turned up are two portraits that he commissioned himself, that he asked photographers to make for him, and he paid them for it. He presented both of these portraits to white alums of the university. They both describe how Henry Martin offered them a picture of himself, and they graciously accepted it. So these portraits (laughs) that Martin commissioned show him as a statesman. They are portraits that 
absolutely take him away from the university. They're, they are studio portraits. There's no trace of the university. There's no trace of being a bell ringer. There's no trace of being a janitor. In both, he is shown as a man of tremendous dignity and respectability. Uh, in one, you might guess that this man is, oh, he must be a deacon at a church. And in fact, he was a deacon at the First Baptist Church, uh, which still exists here on West Main Street in Charlottesville. He was a deacon in a black Baptist church. And the other, even more striking portrait, you might guess that he's a statesman, a senator, a Supreme Court justice, a president. It is just an immensely dignified picture. He's dressed in a dark suit and he's wearing a white shirt and tie. And the background is entirely black and his face is just sort of glowing out of that black background. It's very, very similar to portraits of people like Abraham Lincoln. He, when he hands these portraits to these two white alums, is saying, this is me. This is who I am. And saying, you don't really understand me. You know, you see me as the faithful servant. You see me in my role as the bell ringer and the janitor, but you don't see me like this. You know, this, this man of great dignity who has another life besides his life at the university. And he did. You know, he's the father of a very large family. He and his wife had bought a lot and built a house for themselves. He understood the power of visual imagery to say something about him that other representations had completely missed. I've seen all of these different images, and it's so powerful. Where can people hearing you now find these online? We have a small website that will talk about the um, exhibition and show you some of the images. Soon to be published is a catalog. And in the catalog, we will show all of the portraits that are part of the exhibition, plus little blurbs about the life of the people who are in the portraits. How long will the exhibition be up? The exhibition closes on the 23rd of June, uh, 2023. Well, the exhibition's been up. Have you ever been around when descendants of any of these people in the portraits were there? One of the most rewarding facets of, of working on this exhibition is that we have found descendants of people who are in the portraits. And it's always great to meet them because often they don't know that these portraits of their ancestors even existed. They're seeing them for the first time. And, and that's kind of a thrill, right, to, to bring these about. And they're also seeing them now blown up large on the walls. And we're able to tell them things about their ancestors that often they don't know. But people who are descended from people in the portraits can also tell us things that we cannot learn from the census. We can't learn from birth and death certificates or from marriage records, from tax records. So we have one portrait of uh, Reuben Gordon. He's about 40 years old, and uh, he's built like a football linebacker. I mean, he's a tall man. He's a muscular man. And he's dressed in this beautiful three-piece suit, you know, coat, vest, pants, uh, trousers, He's got a gold watch chain hanging, looping down from his vest. I mean, he looks like a banker. He looks like a corporate lawyer, you know? He was a man of great responsibility. He was the manager of the stables at a very large horse farm in the western part of Albemarle County, which surrounds Charlottesville area. Okay, so here's Reuben Gordon in this beautiful portrait. And I walked into the gallery one day, and there are two elderly African-American women, and they're looking intently at Reuben Gordon's um, uh, portrait. So I have to go over and talk to them. And I asked them, well, did you know anything about Reuben Gordon? One of them says, well, he was my uncle. Wow. It's really remarkable. But, you know— you know, Reuben Gordon didn't die all that long ago. This portrait was made right around 1919, but his life continues, right? So, but in case, she's talking about um, her uncle Reuben and says, you know, he always dressed like that. We called him bourgeois. <laughs> well, that's nice to know. And that's part of the story of his life, that he was always so conscious about how he dressed. John, this is so amazing. What are you most excited about as people continue to see and experience the exhibition? You know, in Central Virginia, we've been looking a lot at our history. 
We've been looking at particular facets of that history, though. Uh, People elsewhere in the country might be aware that we've had a big controversy about our Confederate memorials and should our Confederate memorials stand or should they be taken down. In the course of looking at that kind of history, we looked at segregation in Charlottesville. We've looked at the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. We've looked at the lynchings in the surrounding counties. You know, we've looked at a a pretty brutal history of racial oppression. What this exhibition does, it goes in a different direction. It looks at what African-Americans were doing despite the oppression. You know, and these images, these portraits, which bear no trace of the racial oppression the people were doing, is an invitation to look at the families they were creating, to look at the communities that they were creating, the schools that they were fighting to, to create and preserve, their churches, their, their communal life, their fraternal organizations, their recreation, the music that they were making, the clubs that they went to, the concerts that they went to. You know, this is about respectability, style, joy, (laughs) fashion, that African-Americans participated in politics despite the heavy burden of the poll taxes that you had to pay. You had to pay your poll taxes not just once, but three years in a row. Only then could you qualify for the vote. But before 1920, African-American men were heavily engaged in, in electoral politics here. We haven't known that. The 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which gave women the right to vote, was ratified in 1920. Immediately afterwards, over 100 African-American women from the city of Charlottesville went downtown paid their poll tax and qualified to vote in that year's presidential election. We haven't known that. It's it's quite spectacular to say in the midst of all of this Jim Crow racial oppression, you know, so we are focusing on things that African-Americans are creating, right? And it's a very different side of history from the oppressive side of history. And I think that's one reason that people are responding so well. It's like, Oh, really? African-Americans were stylish in this period? Yes, they were. African-Americans went to concerts in this period? Yes, they did. African-Americans went to dances and had fun during this period? You bet. They participated in politics? Yes, they did, despite the obstacles in front of them. So it's been a joy to show this side of history through this exhibition. Well, what a treat. John Edwin Mason, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. John Edwin Mason is a professor of history at the University of Virginia, where he co-directs the Holsinger Portrait Project. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In the late 1990s, the University of Virginia inherited 10,000 glass plate negatives. They were from the Holsinger Studio, Charlottesville's most popular portrait studio at the turn of the century. And of the 10,000 portraits, 800 were of black Virginians. Holly Robertson is a curator of the University of Virginia's library exhibitions and designer of the Visions of Progress exhibition that was made from those portraits She says it's a great snapshot of Charlottesville history. Holly, the UVA history professor John Mason and co-director of the Portrait Project told me he's thrilled with what you've done with these turn-of-the-century gorgeous portraits of Black people and families in Charlottesville. And he said he was skeptical at first of your ideas for how to display them, and now he's thrilled How did you first encounter John when it came to these portraits? John had been placing these portraits around grounds on construction site fences. And, you know, they did not have names. They were just these beautiful portraits that people would encounter. And I love them. I love seeing our collections out in the wild. We've had this collection for 50 years. We've never exhibited it in the library. That's fascinating. He, this history professor, was taking these beautiful turn-of-the-century portraits and just putting them around like Kilroy was here to, to give life to them again and to inform the people who encountered them. Exactly. 
I would see people pontificating about their lives, about who these people might be, what what time period the portraits might be taken. But I knew that I knew their names. I knew that they had a date that their portrait was taken, and I knew that they came from our library, and I wanted a little credit for that. How'd you know who they were? There are 10,000 glass plate negatives in this whole Singer Studio collection at the UVA library. And they came to us in envelopes in about 1970. They were on deposit for a couple years before we purchased the collection. It's such an incredible piece of Charlottesville history. It's a visual piece of Charlottesville history of between 1890 and 1920. And we knew their names because the name of the customer was written on the envelope of the glass plate negative. It's written in the ledger, the business ledger of the Holsinger studio. Only 600 of the 10,000 are African-American portraits? Right. Correct. About 600. And these 600 we cataloged in the 1990s to understand, you know, are they, what are their names? What are the dates of the portraits? All of these, this information came from the ledger or from the, the envelope in which the glass plate negatives were stored. So when I saw those portraits that John was placing around grounds, I knew that we could say more about those portraits. We could say more about those people. We knew who they were. And if we did a little research, we could talk about their lives and what their experience was in Charlottesville and Central Virginia. Were you part of the crew that first digitized them? No. That was in the late 1990s. This was one of the first collections that the library digitized because it was such an incredible visual history piece of Central Virginia. We did it as best as we could in the 1990s. Here in 2023, we want to do a little bit better. In the 1990s, we had to place them in a sort of holder that cut off the perimeter of the portrait. So you didn't see the complete glass plate negative. And you didn't see sometimes what was written at the top of the glass plate. So we lost a little information. And with this exhibition, we went back and redigitized the ones that were featured in the exhibition. So we could show people this full glass plate. It's not remarkable when you look at a glass plate just by itself. You know, you have to view it with some light. You can't see. It's like an audio cassette. You know there's something great on that audio cassette, probably. But you don't know what it is until you intervene a bit. Who do you get to do that? Don't you need a brilliant, experienced, capable photographer to turn a glass plate into a beautiful portrait? We do. And we have these amazing photographers, local photographers in Charlottesville, Stacy Evans and Eze Amos who work in the UVA library, they are incredible in their work to transform formats like glass plate negatives into something you can view and see online. Do you think we'll ever lose that, that people will sit around with a glass plate and think, huh, how do we turn this into a picture? You know, it's an art that's still practiced today. There are still glass plate photographers today creating glass plates. My only formal family portrait is on a glass plate negative. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I can take a photo with my phone every day and every night of my children. But one time at Second Street Gallery, they offered glass plate negative portraits. And I knew that that was something I wanted to do because it's an incredible format. This collection, you know, made me think about capturing your this moment in time and what the format is. Is it something on your phone that you can walk around with? Is it on a glass plate that you have to put in a special drawer that no one can find and sometimes you can't even find because yeah. <laughs> you're trying to protect it? So when you lovingly decided to redigitize the portraits that are in the exhibition, did you encounter any difficulties with the digitization of it? Yes. The portraits taken by the Holsinger Studio 100 years ago were taken with natural light. They were taken of people who were black, who were white, in a variety of settings during times of the day. So we had to think about skin tone and contrast and all of the elements that go into creating a photograph and then how we might best shape that photograph once we digitize it, the decisions that we make that impact how that portrait displays today. And those skin tones are beautiful. You did a wonderful job with light and really bringing people out. They feel so warm and alive. They do. And, you know, 
John Edwin Mason is a photographer himself. So it turns out if you get enough photographers in one room, they do a little combat and then they come together and they, you know, this is what we think is the best. This is the best production of this portrait that we can do online, that we can do now in print for you to come up and see in the exhibition. John was taking these portraits and putting them in various places around the grounds to the delight and edification of everyone. And then you thought, I can do even better. We, we can give some background on the lives of each of these people. When did you get to, John, let's make a really beautiful display? I'm really bad at holding back a good idea, and it's not my idea. Like, it was his idea to put these portraits everywhere. And so I think I may have said, I can help you hang these in a way that's, you know, going to make them not be blown off by the wind. But also, what if we put the names? What if we put, you know, a credit line that says who these people were and where this portrait comes from so that people who want to know more can come someplace and know more? And he was, uh, you know, oh, that, that sounds like a great idea. But I could tell maybe this is an exhibition and maybe he would be an outstanding exhibition partner. He likes to say that, you know, without me, he would be in a room with a PowerPoint slideshow showing these portraits. And I like to say that without John, I'd be in our basement in the library with 10,000 glass plate negatives, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's the space in between where we were able to create something, some reason for people to come to a space and see these portraits that was an exhilarating experience. Describe some of the pictures that jumped out at you early on that you just were drawn to yourself. I love Cora Murray, who is featured in one of our windows in the gallery. Windows in an exhibition space, it's not, it's not a great idea. You know, you don't want to let a lot of light in when you're showing original materials, as we do in our exhibitions. It's something that you have to control. And previously, we just closed the shutters. And for years, I've wanted to put something in those windows in our exhibition gallery. How big are the windows? They're like four feet by 12 feet. They're pretty big. They're very tall. So when you put a person in there, she feels not life-sized, but outsized. And there's no better person to feel big and tall and proud than Cora Murray. Cora Brown Murray was a laundress. She was a pillar in Charlottesville's African-American community for years, active in schools, churches. She taught at the Jefferson Primary School for 41 years and served as its principal. Isn't that an amazing thing? So on one hand, was a laundress, but was also the principal of the school, the most revered, highly placed academic person, which shows the constraints of Jim Crow era life, right? Yeah. That people had to live these double lives. Yes. And we know from looking at voting records in Charlottesville that she was one of the first women of any race to register to vote after the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. I bet as curator, this exhibit is so much more personal to you and more beloved because of that human connection. There's so many living people who feel so energized by what's on display now. Yes, and it's the connections that they make to their own lives. Does it remind them of their ancestor? Does it remind them of their grandmother? These portraits, you know, although they're of specific people from a specific time in Charlottesville, they are timeless in that they are everyday people. You know, you can see yourself in some of these portraits, the outfits. I, I would wear a lot of these beautiful clothes that are clearly made by some of the men and women who sit in the portrait. They're beautiful, they're classic, they're graceful, and they're elegant. There's a photograph of um, George Carr standing in the door front of his secondhand clothing store. And he's sort of in the midground, and you see a line of suits in the background. And you just have to know that he was so proud of his business, of what he would accomplish, of his storefront, of the place where he, you know, found himself on that day in his own space. And he had his portrait taken there. He had the whole singer studio come out to his business and take his portrait in his space, in his business. It's so selfie. It is. It is. But you're commissioning this. And so, you know, there's some, you, you, you pay someone to come and do this for you rather than doing it for yourself. You couldn't do it for yourself at that time. 
What do you think this does in 2023, in the era we're in now? What do you think this does to re-represent this era and these people? Well, it was the Jim Crow era, and it was the era of erecting monuments that we're taking down today. It's the era of the people, the portrait setters. If they were not enslaved, they are perhaps descendants of people who were enslaved. It's a time of what you would think would be hardship and struggle and oppression. And yet, we don't see that in these photographs. We do see Black joy and we see success and pride and love and being so proud of what you have done that you go in and you have your portrait taken. Holly, thank you for sharing your insights on this on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Holly Robertson is curator of the University of Virginia's Library Exhibitions and designer of the Visions of Progress photo exhibition on display until June 24th. Now we take you up Interstate 64 to Jackson Ward. Jackson Ward is a neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia, that was known as the Harlem of the South and was once called the Black Wall Street. But starting in the 1950s, it was torn down in favor of Interstate 95. And my next guest says that destruction of the neighborhood was deliberate and planned. Latoya Gray Sparks is a professor of African-American studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Latoya, you created a map of a vibrant African-American community in Richmond, Virginia, before it was destroyed. Tell me about this place called Jackson Ward and what it was like in its former glory. Yeah. So Jackson Ward is near what we consider to be today the downtown area, and it was the home to hundreds, if not thousands, of former slaves settled within the city. And so they built beautiful homes, they started businesses, and it became what people would call the Harlem of the South. It was a thriving and a resilient and self-sustaining community. That's so interesting. What did you notice about the kinds of businesses and fun things to do within walking distance of these homes that people had there? Yeah, so I loved that it was essentially a walkable community. Um, and that is something that urban planners are trying to recreate, just having more centralized nodes where everything is in walking distance, like from a grocery store to, say, a doctor's office, church. Like, there's now a movement to recreate that and make it so that people are like 10 minutes away from, you know, amenities and services that they need. So essentially, that is what was created in Jackson Ward. So you had um, a number of doctors and nurses and people who sewed clothes, um, gosh, carpenters. There were several grocery markets within that space. So just anything that you could think of that you would need as a community, like they were able to create that in that space. And again, because they were constrained by geography. So After Jackson Ward was nearly leveled by urban renewal and a giant highway, it became a food desert. And yet it wasn't anything close to a food desert in its heyday. Correct. And um, I think that is something that I learn more about as I map people and places displaced by urban renewal. Because, um, yes, um, we talk about certain areas in the city being food deserts. I mean, there are no grocery stores nearby in the area um, in a convenient location. But in my map, I discovered there were like I want to say 20 to 30 little markets within that area. So I thought that that was pretty fascinating and something that I was not aware of until doing my research. What happened to Jackson Ward and when did it happen? There are a lot of urban plans being created across the country, I guess, towards the end of the 1930s and then through the 1940s. So 
let's see, Harlan Bartholomew it was an engineer, and now he's known as an urban planner, but he um, was hired by the city of Richmond in the 1930s to start um, mapping the city and pretty much also to figure out where blighted properties were. Um, a lot of people were concerned about um, how unsanitary downtown areas were becoming as well as crowded, but then there was also um, the construction of highways starting to be um, planned and built. And then later on, there would be a comprehensive plan for the city created and adopted in 1946. And that in many ways set the groundwork and the framework for what we know as urban renewal um, here in Richmond. Harlan Bartholomew was actually kind of nationally renowned in his field. He had done this kind of mapping for St. Louis and Louisville and Memphis. And each time he identified the black neighborhoods as the ones he called blighted and disheveled. Yes, he did. Um, So he helped to set the framework or create the framework of cities that we know today. And the cities that you just mentioned, St. Louis and Memphis and Louisville, like a lot of those locations have been recently areas where there's been a lot of social unrest um, related to, you know, policing and other issues, poverty, lack of affordable housing, and a lot of that I believe can be traced back to plans that Harlan Bartholomew created starting in the 1930s. Was he doing it deliberately? Was he talking with others about we need to separate black and white neighborhoods, black and white communities? Yeah. So if you look at stuff that he said, like in Louisville, Kentucky, like he was talking about the Negro problem in downtown Louisville. And the Negro problem was that there were too many black people living in a space and they needed to essentially be cleared out. So while he didn't Mm. use that awful language in Richmond, um, there are accounts that I've come across in which he's said some not very flattering things about Black people. I think he also associated Black spaces as being blighted and not valuable and therefore ripe for destruction and demolition and and being renewed. And what had he said or done in terms of setting the stage for the ultimate destruction in Richmond of Jackson Ward? Well, if you look at the maps that his firm created, and there are many of them um, starting from the 1930s to the 1940s, he targeted specifically where Black people lived. I think that his concentration and targeting of Black communities kind of went hand in hand also with the redlining maps that banks and lenders use to determine the value of property. So this is where Black people live. This is a neighborhood that is in decline or is, you know, just not of any value. And when did urban renewal come then? I would say around the 1950s through the 1960s. Um, the map that I created of like 1,500 people and places displaced from the downtown area that was based on a directory from 1956. So if you looked at like a directory from the following year in 1957, you can notice that there are certain streets that no longer exist or are no longer listed because they'd been selected for demolition and the construction of the highways. So how did Richmond set about leveling a lot of Jackson Ward. What was the impetus? The impetus was um, a desire to create an expressway through the downtown Richmond area. And so the expressway would be I-95, which is, you know, a major highway that runs through the city now. And those living in Jackson Ward were unfortunately in the way of that expressway, of that highway. So essentially the highway that we have today um, runs through what used to be Jackson Ward in the downtown Richmond area. How many homes and businesses would you estimate were lost just to make way for that giant expressway? I would estimate at least I've mapped like 1,500 locations of homes and businesses that no longer exist. What remains on either side of that of Jackson Ward? 
So on the south side of the expressway is what would be considered historic Jackson Ward. It is attracting more of an affluent class of people. So so there's something going on there, and it's exciting, but also can be very um, concerning for those who've lived in the area for quite some time. And then to the north of the highway, on the other side of Jackson Ward, is what would be called the Gilpin District, and that is where public housing exists. So Gilpin Court, um, I believe like the largest public housing community in the city is on that side of the highway. Um, the last time I checked, the median income is around $10,000 for households. Um, it's mm. a predominantly black community, but also there's a lot of concentrated poverty and isolation and lack of access to opportunities. What can we do as cities, as governments, as individuals, to make sure this kind of planned destruction doesn't happen again? Yeah, so I guess the big takeaway for me was just learning how like urban plan urban plans matter. And like it if you can pay attention to the processes and do your best just to um, stay aware of what's going on, I think that's a first step. You never know what kind of difference you can make. LaToya Gray, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great talking to you as well. LaToya Gray Sparks is a professor of African-American studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. She won an environmental rating scale prize for her map titled Planned Destruction, a brief history on land ownership, valuation, and development in the city of Richmond and the maps used to destroy Black communities. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Custo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.